You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 444, Emanations. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we peer into the abyss, unafraid what lies on the other side, in order to discuss the meaning in each and every episode of Star Trek. This week, Emanations, the one with Harry Kim in a nutshell. No, literally, help, get him out of this great big nutshell. How did he get in that great big nutshell? No, behave. We will explore Harry's journey and that of the rest of the Venori into the great beyond just as soon as I tell all of you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, with all of this episode's trivia... Here, once again, is John Champion of <laughs> Nice, nice. All right. Trivia for Emanations. This story and teleplay credited to Brandon Braga. Probably not a surprise here if you're paying attention. You got elements of horror, a bit of darkness and death. It's actually a concept for a story that Brandon had way back in his earliest days with TNG, but he could never quite find the angle or the opportunity for it. Finally, early in Voyager, he starts to play with these deep topics the way he wants to, mostly. It was directed by David Livingston on a hot streak, and again, not a surprise here. We talked about David's first Voyager episode, The Cloud, just two weeks ago, and now we're back with another of his 28 total. Now, let's talk about some of the production aspects. Uh, This is not really an effects-heavy show, but the budget was thrown toward all those shots of the USS Voyager in and around the ringed planet, combination of CGI and matte paintings. Other shots of the ship were primarily stock footage of the studio model. While other than that, this wasn't a very effects-heavy show, there was one shot that was cut for expense, much to the consternation of the episode's writer. Brannon's wish was to have a sequence from Harry Kim's POV while inside the cenotaph at the moment it is activated and he slips into nothingness. The scene was cut and Brannon felt like it would have been a more powerful, more profound moment for the audience to connect with Harry in that way. All right, this week's cast spotlight is Tim Russ as Tuvok. Okay, as the crew of Voyager comes together, let's meet our security chief and resident Vulcan, Tuvok. If you've been paying attention for our trivia for some time now, you've already learned a few things about Tim. In fact, we've already seen him on three Trek uh, instances, once on TNG, once on DS9, and finally in the movie Star Trek Generations. Prior to his long association with Trek, though, Tim was studying acting on scholarship at Illinois State University. That was after bouncing around from different locations. His dad was in the Air Force, and a young Tim grew up in multiple places in the U.S., and he even actually graduated from high school in Turkey. 
The professional acting roles on TV started in the 80s. You may remember that Tim auditioned for the role of Jordy the Forge on Next Generation. And famously for sci-fi genre fans, Tim has a small but very memorable role in Mel Brooks's Spaceballs, in which he is a trooper combing the desert. Since Voyager, Tim has had his hands in a number of professional projects, both as actor and director. Star Trek is never far away, though, and he has appeared in games and fan films. He even directed Roddenberry on Patrol and Of Gods and Men, reuniting with uh, a number of Star Trek alumni. Also, don't forget, Tim is an accomplished musician. His band plays in L.A. regularly and tours frequently. You may even catch him and his band jamming at a convention or Trek event from time to time. Seriously, they're really good. Don't miss them. Now let's talk about our guest cast. Welcome back to Martha Hackett as Seska. And our aliens on a distant homeworld this week are played by Cecile Callan, who as Patera finds herself on board Voyager. She got her start on TV in the early 80s and in 1992 married newscaster Brian Rooney, son of Andy Rooney, while Cecile's acting credits in just a year after this episode of Voyager was released, she carried on working as an editor for the Rooney Report online. Jeffrey Allen Chandler plays Hatiel, and he also got his start in the early 80s, mostly on TV, uh, but then with a few feature films. Uh, for example, in La Bamba, he played radio icon Alan Freed. Later, he had a recurring role on Stephen Bochco's Cop Rock and then made two Star Trek appearances, this one and season three DS9's episode Facets. Jeffrey passed away in 2001. Hatil's wife, Loria, is played by Robin Groves. She got her start in soap operas and bounced between TV and features for her on-screen career. This episode of Voyager is uh, one of her last few, but Robin simultaneously had a robust onstage career, which she continues well after her life in TV and film. Finally, Nerea, the thanatologist, is played by veteran character actor Jeffrey Harden. His career spans seven decades on stage and screen. His appearances are far too many to list here, and it's likely you remember him from The X-Files, where he was the mysterious Deep Throat. He was on TNG twice, once in When the Bow Breaks, where he looked much more like himself, and then again under some pretty extensive makeup to play Mark Twain in Time's Arrow Parts 1 and 2. This is his final Trek appearance, but after this you can spot him on From the Earth to the Moon, Nip Tuck, Cold Case, and much, much more. So much for going straight home. These side quests are going to be the death of me, or someone. Prologue. Ensign Harry Kim has made yet another significant discovery. He's identified a new element, one that could become the 247th known in the Federation database. As Voyager scans the rings of asteroids around a Class D planet, Commander Chakotay assembles an away team to take a closer look at one of these asteroids, and most notably invites Harry Kim to the party. However, after beaming down to one of the asteroid's caverns, Chakotay, Torres, and Kim all wade their way through a network of what appears to be webs, only to discover a wealth of decaying bodies on the cavern floor. Act 1. 
Chakotay reports that they have found 18 decaying bodies inside the asteroid, 11 male and 7 female, and all in differing stages of decay. Much to their dismay, it also appears that the decaying bodies are the source of that 247th element that Harry identified earlier. The question is, how did the bodies get there? Chakotay recommends leaving this mass grave in peace, while Harry believes that there is an opportunity here to investigate and learn more. As a compromise, Chakotay allows the investigation to continue with visual scanning only, i.e. no tricorders. Balana and Harry are at a loss without their tricorder, so Sherlock Chakotay points out that the way these bodies were prepared, naked and without any worldly possessions, all indicate the species believes in ritual preparation for the afterlife. However, before they can deliberate further, a strange glow fills the cavern, and Seska locks onto them for an emergency beam-out. As Chakotay and Bolana materialize on the transporter pad, they discover a dead female body at their feet, similar to what they found in the cave, but more recently deceased based on Bolana's scans of her still minimal brain activity. Chakotay orders an emergency beam-out to sickbay to see if there's any chance this woman can be revived to figure out what happened to Harry who was transported elsewhere into some kind of pod, surrounded by dozens of aliens who cannot believe their eyes once the pod is opened. Act 2. Elsewhere, a husband and a wife of the same species that just encountered a very abrupt first contact event with Harry Kim appear to be saying their goodbyes in preparation for Hatil, the husband, to undergo the next emanation. After a tearful parting, Harry is escorted into this holding area by the very two robed officials who opened the pod where he materialized moments ago. One of these officials, named Renora, leaves Harry to find a thanatologist, who may have the answers they are looking for. When Dr. Neria arrives, he learns from Harry how all of what has happened has come to pass, that Harry was investigating an asteroid filled with dead bodies. The doctor tells Harry that his species are the Venori, and that there are no rings or asteroids orbiting their planet. Hatil, overhearing the conversation, is visibly shaken about Harry mentioning the dead bodies he found on the asteroid, but Dr. Neria insists that Harry has indeed returned from the afterlife, or what they refer to as the next emanation. Back on Voyager, the doctor was able to save his patient from her near-fatal condition of a cancerous growth on her brainstem. He also points out that the webbing that covered her body is actually a byproduct of her own tissues upon decay. The more the decay, the greater the amount of bipolar membranes. And yes, Balana, the exact same ones you waded through earlier on the asteroid. Upon waking his patient, they learn her name is Patera. However, terror seizes her immediately upon gaining consciousness, and Patera declares that this isn't the afterlife she was supposed to experience. The doctor has no choice but to sedate her, as Janeway and Chakotay look on helplessly. Act 3 Back on the Venori homeworld, Dr. Neria is fascinated by Harry Kim's transposition with a woman named Patera who was in the same cenotaph at the same time when Harry emerged from it, sparking new and rampant speculation amongst the Venori people about the afterlife, the next emanation. Neria tells Harry that Patera was dying from a brain tumor. She chose to enter her next emanation by using the cenotaph, which ushers the physical body through a spectral rupture and into the afterlife. Harry realizes that this is the subspace vacuole which transported him from the asteroid to his current whereabouts. However, as much as Harry insists he has to return to his ship, Dr. Neria is even more insistent to keep Harry under watch, as the doctor can't let go of his only proof of life after death. Meanwhile, on Voyager, Chakotay's scans of the ring system have detected some 200,000 alien bodies deposited on numerous asteroids, deposited there by the same routine appearance of a subspace vacuole every two hours. 
Janeway believes that these scheduled appearances may be their chance to sync up with a vacuole as a means to get Harry back. Unfortunately, Patera doesn't have any more information on the matter and tells Janeway about the process of the next emanation. And now, after all she's seen and experienced, Patera feels even more alone and confused. As Kess takes her from sickbay to get something to eat, Voyager is rocked by a subspace vacuole that has deposited a Venori corpse in engineering. Act 4. Hatil and his wife Loria are at odds with his recent hesitation to undergo the next emanation. Loria blames Harry for his alien influence and interference and warns him to stay away from her husband. Hatil admits that his doubts about the afterlife are growing differently the closer he gets to his ceremony and that going through with it is more for the benefit of his family's decision than his. Harry has no answers about the afterlife, much to Hatil's chagrin, and that so many of the Venori who have asked Harry about what lies beyond. Harry, to the best of his ability, tries to respect the unique position that he's in and tries to be supportive to an already confused and tentative Hatil. Back on Voyager, more Venori corpses begin materializing across different locations on the ship due to their proximity to the ring system and the vacuoles that appear closer and closer to the warp core. Janeway and Bellana both agree that maintaining some distance between the ship and the planet is the best course of action for now. Meanwhile, Cass and Patera are deep in conversation regarding the spirituality of their respective species. Patera believes that she needs to try and return to her people because it is the only way she feels that she can find peace either in her life as it is or in the afterlife for which she was destined and prepared to meet before being revived by the doctor. Sadly, in trying to transport Patera through a vacuole, with a device that would help locate Harry, the attempt to send Patera through failed, and this time she did perish, as Kess looks over her body, hoping for Patera to find her afterlife. Act 5 Back in the Venori holding room, Dr. Neria is insistent that Harry is to be further analyzed at another location. However, Harry knows that if he's moved, he will lose any chance of Voyager finding him. But he has a plan, one that will save two lives if it works. Harry convinces Hatil to let him take his place in the ceremony. He believes that once he enters the cenotaph and is transported through a vacuole, Voyager will pick up his signal and beam him aboard. The plan is sound. The reality is that Harry Kim will die in the process. What can go wrong? Wrapped in Hatil's family burial shroud, he's encased in the cenotaph as Hatil's wife tearfully says her farewell to her beloved husband. Two glowing rods attached to his neck and... Back on Voyager, a dead male human body appears on Deck 12. Janeway realizes it's Harry and has him beamed to sickbay where the doctor risks a few drops of cordrazine and brings him back to life. Later, in a darkened mess hall, Captain Janeway excuses Harry from duty for a few days to let him reflect on and absorb what has happened, and to not lose the perspective of how life-altering his experiences have been. While Harry tries to make sense of the Venori afterlife, Janeway reminds him of a certainty that what they don't know about death is far, far greater than what they do know. She assures him that when he is ready, his bridge station will be waiting for him. The end. Norman, you threw me for a loop, and I think our audience, you did, hang on, one, two, wait, prologue, one, two, three, four, and then there was, oh, act five. Act five, five full acts John, in the show. There yeah. are five, five acts. acts. 
<laughs> there are four acts. Mm-hmm. All right, there are five acts. And indeed, we talked a few episodes ago about the changeover, how things have been written for five and then converted over to four, and how uh, Janet Nemechek and Lolita Fajo sat up late nights trying to convert these scripts to fit that format. And here's why. So as you all remember... Voyager premiered on UPN. So we're breaking that syndication model and going over to a brand new network. And granted, that network had its own standards and its own kind of growing pains. And one of the things that they felt at the time was, um, well, we're sort of a prestige move. We, we're just going to have four commercial breaks. So that'll be how we format our shows. And uh, it'll be a little more in line with kind of the other network shows. And then they very quickly thought, you know what? We'll take that extra ad break. <laughs> let's, let's go ahead and sell some more ads, shall we? Uh, give them the chance to do so. So that's what they did. Um, whether it goes back to a four-act structure, can't tell you. But I'm pretty sure that it stays at five at this point. So that's why things kind of flip-flop back and forth. Seeing the early growth of Voyager and the early growth of the uh, the late, great UPN network, <laughs> their business decisions. All right, let's talk about the episode, Emanations. Nice job on that, uh, on that recap, my friend. And uh, first thing right away, look... I am not the science consultant for Mission Log. I am certainly not the science consultant for uh, Star Trek. 247 elements, Norman. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay, look, I'm glad we got the number 47 in there. You're allowed one per episode. That's it. Right. Okay. But my, oh, my, would that be a heavy and very energetic element? I, and I'm just wondering, there's like, oh, we'll just beam a sample on board. Can you? <laughs> you know? I mean, that just seems like that would create its own set of problems. I was waiting for, for Tom to, you know, prop up his friend like he did when he found the wormhole. It's like, you know, if Harry Kim, yeah. you know, gets to name it the Harry Kim wormhole, why doesn't he get to name this element the Harry Kim element? Where was Tom? Oh, that's right. He was yeah. counting how many dates he didn't get. Oh, ooh, nice. Nicely done. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's the truth. And then those asteroids, which are part of that ring system, they have Class M atmospheres. This is, uh, wow, okay, that's a lot to kind of absorb and grasp by. Oh, sure, you can just beam in there, i.e. not pay for a spacesuit effect (laughs) in this episode. But I'm just thinking, okay, an asteroid, not very big. So class M atmosphere must not be too concerned about gravity. And and what else could possibly be on those asteroids if they're class M? Like, can you grow stuff? I have a lot of questions. You can grow webs. There were a lot of webs on the asteroids. <laughs> you can grow yeah. You know? Yeah, by the way, I didn't put this in my notes, but as soon my, my first watch through on this episode in that teaser, I just kept thinking, nope, 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 nope. Turn around, go home. Like, guys, we're killing time here. Let's just step on it, get back to the Alpha Quad. What I liked though, I liked that it was like a, a subversion of expectations where it's not webbing, you know, it's this biomolecular polymer eventually that will you know be described as such but they even said so with the tricoders it's like well it's not webs i'm like oh good so they're not in shelob's lair you know looking for Gollum, you know because it's very right. lord of the ringsy uh, it there. is yeah but it is because it was brandon i was like oh this is going to be another horror episode or is it something different and i'm glad it turned into something different i like that yeah 
Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. Now, let's talk a little bit. Maybe this will come up again later in the show, but I'm not sure because there's a lot to unpack in this episode. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Chakotay and Harry Kim's disagreement about how to study these bodies mm-hmm. in the asteroid. A really good argument on both sides there. And I really like the respect that they show each other. Yeah. I just thought in so few sentences, that was a strong moment. I also like how this is following up like Chakotay's spiritualism from, was it in the cloud? I believe it was. Oh, sure. Where With the, the medicine bundle. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. a little bit more of, I think, his sensitivity on the spiritual side of things. I thought that was really yeah. interesting. And I liked how there was, again, there's this kind of like mutual respect of seeing all sides of the equation. I mean, even Bolana's side, she's like, I don't, I don't see any point in any of this because none of it was scientific, <laughs> really. So I'm like, okay, yeah. that's, that's fair. Well, okay, can, uh, let me play devil's advocate here because may- maybe this leans more toward my own feelings. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm not just playing devil's advocate. Uh, just by being there, they have already disturbed that place. True. I mean, ju- just they're very present. True. And, and it seems like if you scan it from afar, from Voyage and go, there's a bunch of dead bodies there. You're just going kind of like, well, maybe we shouldn't beam over. Maybe we should leave this, you know. And uh, look, they're breathing in molecules of the decomposing bodies all around them. It is already disturbed. Mm-hmm. I think using a tricorder is a very good idea. And interesting that they mentioned you could have, I guess, a passive or active scan. We don't know what the active scan necessarily would do. But I would just say that they've already violated that. So I feel like Chakotay is being a little sanctimonious, maybe. I think that, you know, I mean, in, if it was like a real conversation, yeah. But I think that, you know, mm. for, the, for the sake of preparing like the argument of this is sacred space. Yeah, sure. sure. Yeah, yeah. I love pass- What's a passive scan? Like basically the tricord is saying, I don't care, whatever. Right? Is that a <laughs> passive scan? <laughs> <laughs> whatever. It's fine. What did you find? I found yeah. stuff. That's, that's fine. <laughs> whatever you found is great. Whatever. I don't care. Right? <laughs> That's a passive aggressive -aggressive scanner. scanner? (laughs) (laughs) But I I do love, okay, uh, which is almost as helpful as Chakotay saying uh, to Balana, the fact that they're naked says a lot. It means this race doesn't believe in dressing the deceased. Thank you so much, Commander Chakotay. Also, uh, if I may just add to the dialogue, the fact that they drank water means that they were thirsty. And the fact that we are talking to each other means that we are talking with words. Mm-hmm. Like, th- 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 I'm sorry, but that was some very circular logic. They're naked because they don't believe in dressing the deceased. Wow. Wow. Term- Shocking display of logic. Terminators came mm-hmm. through naked. So, but then the, the, the out of that was, uh, I don't know. I didn't design the thing <laughs> about the time right. travel machine. Uh, okay. So yeah. kids secret word for today is vacuole. Yay. <laughs> because it is that said was... a lot in this episode. That, yes, a lot. indeed. Indeed. I have a question for you, John. Um, yeah. Transporter room three is a very specific designation. Because when you know Janeway calls to Seska, transporter room three, do you have them back, et cetera, et cetera. What, yeah. what about transporter rooms one and two? Does, is transporter room three the transporter room that has like, the most amount of biofilters in the, in the pattern buffer, like the nearest to security so Tuvok can bring an armed detail in there just in case things go south? I mean, seriously, you know? Like, 
Yeah, maybe. I, maybe it's closest to the bridge or closest to sickbay or has a certain level of... Uh, what I picture is I, I picture transporter rooms one and two, and it's like Voyager's equivalent of Chief O'Brien just hanging out in there all day. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, oh. Are they like uh, the Voyager well. mud rooms? Is that where you should like knock your boots off to get the webbing off your feet? You know? Maybe, yeah. maybe, okay. maybe that—that's where they should have beamed them up. But I, I just—I—I I, I keep thinking about those other rooms. Like, uh, it's oh eight hundred. Just uh, checking in here to beam them to the mud room. Room okay. two. Yeah. Uh. Gosh, darn it. <laughs> Yeah, mm. um, I, I do really like uh, after we, you know, beam up uh, Patera. Um, I really love that shot of her waking up in sick bay. Yeah, because that just using something very simple like a fisheye lens, very creative, told you everything you needed to know mm-hmm. about her state of mind and how shocking that would be to wake up and see that. I thought that was very cool. And that also goes back to say a, a Brandon Braga ish. You know, element of the horror nature of the episode because that was that fisheye lens looking up at strangers and you getting pinned down and people are poking and prodding at you. That's very horror episode centric. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was very horror centric. And, and by the way, another little trick like that, another little camera trick in there is that David Livingston, if you watch those scenes that are on the uh, Venori world, the cameras always turn just a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's always Dutch, just a wee bit to throw off your perspective. So, yeah, nice little nice little nod there. Uh, we lost a little bit of an opportunity here where the EMH could have said, I'm a doctor, not an angel, or something like that, you know? Oh, that would have been cool. Like, where am I? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so a big stickler that I always have with Star Trek of the 90s is the fact that everyone speaks human common. Even if you're transported into another dimension, I really wish that somewhere along the line, something was addressed where his communicator said that I'm speaking to you through technology, not from not yeah, because like, like I'm from right. beyond or from the afterlife or from the next emanation. I'm speaking to you because this little device on my chest allows me to understand you and you understand me. I'm not an angel. I'm not a spirit. You know, I'm not a specter. I'm not anything holy or sacred. I'm just a person. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that would have been very cool. One last question for you, John. The actor who played Hatil, yeah. very slight in his body. You could see kind of like the kind of like the boniness of his shoulders, like the boniness of his frame. Yeah. And when you tightly wrap somebody like that, you can see a lot more of the slightness of that physicality. Yeah. yeah. Now, Garrett, he has at least 15 pounds on him and a few inches. Uh, I was thinking the same thing. Yes. So yeah, they would look different, right? If they were wrapped or mummified. Oh, and also when you are, when you have a relationship with someone, you know what their grip feels like. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So when his wife was, you know, holding his hand for the last time saying her final goodbye, don't you think that that, would feel different in that final moment where you're paying attention to every single thing possible about the person that you're saying goodbye to for the last time. Yeah, like, oh, uh, Hatil, you really patted yourself for the afterlife there, pal. <laughs> <laughs> It's impressive how a whole landing party could walk through so many cobwebs and not immediately look for space spiders.
right, we will get back to emanations in a moment. But first, a word of thanks to our sponsors this week. And those sponsors are you, our supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash mission log. Tell us what's happening in Patreon world, Norman. Well, you know, the interesting thing, John, is that recently Star Trek Chicago just happened and wrapped. But a lot of the experience has been shared uh, with all of our friends on some of our Discord channels. And that's one of the reasons why we actually started doing Discord for Patreon, because we brought all of these fan experiences together to share while we were in lockdown during the initial stages of COVID. And it has grown so wonderfully since then. And now we're getting to experience people's con adventures as if we were kind of there, but it's good enough and it allows us to boost our spirits and to connect with the Star Trek community at large. And I think that's fabulous for everybody involved. I have to agree with you there. I mean, we use that word over and over again, community, and that is truly what it is. We have the great privilege of being able to host this place online for those of you who uh, may have found us through Mission Log, but you found this common community with people who are fans of Star Trek and all kinds of other science fiction and, oh, I don't know, like our Epicureanism board, which uh, I spend a good deal of time in as well. So remember that our Patreon, it isn't just about uh, the swag, although that's pretty great. It isn't just about that early access to shows, which is pretty great as well, but it's also about that huge benefit of joining the Discord community that we have there under the Mission Log banner. So uh, check us out. And oh, uh, we actually have some uh, some new people to shout out, some very recent additions to Patreon. Huzzah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, April, Theron, Jama, Gail, Alex, Laura, welcome. And uh, we certainly look forward to interacting with you on the boards. And if you would like to join us, patreon.com slash mission log. This is little as a buck a month. I mean, come on. And we even give you a discount if you sign up for a year. So check it out. Patreon.com slash mission log. We will see you there. All right, Norman, as we teased earlier in the episode, this is a, an episode of Star Trek that has got a lot going on. <laughs> they, a lot going on. They pack some heavy ideas into their uh, sub 50 minute episode in order to make room for those commercials because you got to do that. <laughs> and, and I can't even really prioritize these because there, there's just a, a lot going on and and i think you know one of the strongest through lines here that is the one that causes frustration and comfort and wonder and causes all these other reactions is just centered on belief just this power mm -hmm. of belief and the venori to me are frustrating in the respect that they illustrate what I think we here on Earth are all too familiar with. And and that is this idea that our deeply held personal beliefs can't stand a challenge of new evidence whenever it comes along. You know, our our gut instinct is to subdue it, challenge it, hide it, if it gets ever too close to breaking down what we wish to be true. And the Nori are us you know they they very much are a reflection of us or that part of us using our sophisticated brains for the wrong purpose you know finding every possible rationalization to argue a point rather than letting new evidence spur us on to new discovery 
Yeah, I wish that they actually went down this particular storyline more so than they did, say, splinter this idea, this kernel of an idea into, say, three or four separate storylines. You know, with following Patera's journey, following Hatil's journey, following Harry's journey, and then following this greater journey, this greater narrative of what was happening with uh, Dr. Naria and his is almost obsession with trying to figure out where Harry came from and whether or not he's going to use this information in any way to manipulate what's happening with the Venori. Because literally, Harry Kim comes out of essentially their like their death sarcophagus. Yeah, yeah, and proves to everybody that there is something from beyond the grave that is happening. But the further discussion isn't explored. And I find that that was really frustrating when watching this episode. Yeah. Well, how can it not be? Because, you know, you can sort of cut them some slack and you can say, okay, well, the Venori only have this particular language to talk about the experience of death and after death, which, you know, by reflex, we, we call it afterlife, even though we have no evidence to say that it is a life after death we really don't but it's the sort of our the the way that our brains are wired to think because that is how we talk about it and i, I let me come to one of the lines here that i i really appreciated and, and it was patera's earnestness and her realization when she uh, is talking to janeway in the voyager's uh, sickbay and she goes we're supposed to evolve into a higher level of consciousness when we die we're supposed to gain a greater understanding of the universe all our questions are supposed to be answered. My heart really breaks for her because this is somebody who doesn't have the tools to sort of fit together a different way of looking at something that she has only been taught one way her entire life. Mm-hmm. And, and you have a sympathy for where this embedded belief leads. And and you, you want to be able to go to somebody like that and say, no, 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 here are the tools that you need to actually think through it but but i ultimately think this is what makes the venuri very relatable yeah you know there's a i I love the interaction or at first with patera and then kess because kess gives her the opportunity to see that her afterlife her next emanation even if it wasn't what she expected it to be what she has been trained to believe it should be it offers her something even probably more more mind-altering, more mind-opening when she is sitting there in the commissary looking at the stars and saying, mm-hmm. you know, it could have, they could have turned the story in such a way where maybe that's something that she never even expected in her understanding mm-hmm. of the next emanation. But no, the next emanation is a programmed way of thinking about the afterlife that if you go through the, uh, the portal then you will be made whole again. You will see your family again. You will experience this greater understanding of the universe in this way. So I found it interesting that there is actually a psychological structure in place for somebody to, I guess, for somebody to compare what their afterlife is supposed to be. But how are you supposed to do that if no one has ever returned from the afterlife to compare that to? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, is this the chicken yeah. and the egg scenario again uh, about the belief system of if I die, then I go here. But if no one reports from there, then how do you know where you're going? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and, and what's so interesting is when faced with the evidence, when faced with a guy like Harry Kim who says like, no, I'm just a guy and I'm alive – 
elsewhere, you know, and all I've seen of your people is that they're dead, <laughs> you know, you, you have no way to conceptualize that, which is really unfortunate uh, that, that mm-hmm. they, they can't make that logical leap. You know, did you ever see the, uh, the Ricky Gervais movie, The Invention of Lying? No, but I'll put that on my list because I love Ricky Gervais. It it really fits in this part of our discussion because he he exists in this you know parallel universe where nobody in his world lies about anything, but then ultimately he has to tell you know he he discovers this ability and it's all fun, but then he has to tell someone close to him, no, when you die, you're going to this other place where your problems are taken care of and you're okay and you see people that you loved who died before you, you know, and it's just this, this heartbreaking moment where you sit there as the audience member fully understanding why we do this, Mm -hmm. but knowing that we don't actually have the evidence to back it up. You know, the, the, the difficult thing here is trying to describe what conceptually is happening. So, at one point in time, you know, there was a certain population of humanity that believed that they were the center of the universe until they weren't. And then you pull back the microscope just a little bit further, and then you reveal more about humanity. Then you pull back and you reveal that, oh, yes, science and not anything else has allowed humanity to, you know, to evolve up to this point. And then you pull back further enough. And if you pull back far enough, you will see essentially this <laughs> – this structure of how to explain away the secrets of what b- people believe is mythology, the mythology of you know human yeah. evolution yeah. Uh, as explained by science and technology. And I think that that's what's happening here that, again, that we didn't get to with Naria. Naria mm. had Harry in his clutches in a way mm-hmm. and didn't really push that narrative further. But Harry is basically saying, like, I saw those bodies, which means that I can report about what's happening to you when you go through the cenotaph. Yeah. This is what's happening. But I also love the sensitivity that uh, that Harry has about, hey, look, I just saw where your remains were deposited. Mm-hmm. I have no idea where the rest of you, you know, evolves to, where your next emanation takes you. Yeah. So that also splinters into another <laughs> dozen or so ways of looking at this episode, right? Uh, well, yeah. And, okay, well, we, we can get to those for sure because then I, I do have some kind of mixed feelings on where they land. I did, by the way, since I mentioned uh, the invention of lying, there were a couple of uh, sci-fi uh, uh, references that I thought of. One was, you know, the TNG episode, Half a Life, uh, because you have the tradition there of death at a certain age meeting with, well, in this case, the unstoppable force that is Luxana Troy. <laughs> saying, mm-hmm. no, your tradition makes no sense, and uh, it doesn't work for me. I want you to reconsider. But then how strong is that tradition? How strong do we follow those uh, guidelines that are indoctrinated into us? And then the other one is, you know, look, I, one of my favorites, one of yours and many on our audience, Logan's Run, where reality is what is dictated by the great intelligence of the citywide computer a la Landru. Uh, right. A la Landru, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. all of it believed without question by the citizens, well, in Logan's Run, the City of the Domes, or in Landru, uh, you know, the Archons. Um, mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, I, I, what I'm saying is that I, I appreciate the idea that because our literature deals with these ideas of existentialism and death and the afterlife, what comes after death, um, and our inability to grasp it, our inability to wrap our minds around non-existence, that this will always be a part of discussion of the human experience sci-fi sure. deals with it in this particular interesting way whereas shakespeare would deal with it in a different way or you know a, a, another uh literary attempt would deal with it in their own way i mean i also wish that they went went down or explored perhaps like where hatil was with all this at the end when it, it did he actually make it to his friends that did his friends also believe that there was an answer to the afterlife that the next emanation wasn't um, wasn't where they wanted to be or it wasn't the philosophy that they wanted to study. I love that there was doubt in Hatil. I love that he was exploring that because it wasn't his idea to go forward with the ceremony to begin with. It was his family's idea. Yeah. Which was, yeah, I agree with Harry. That's chilling. He served his family without any real purpose anymore after his accident. So his family decided to say, hey, you know what? Afterlife sounds pretty good for you. Okay. That, because it's not so great with us. Yeah, that that is... Ooh, thanks, Brandon, because that, that is one of the darker, more challenging elements of this episode. And that is the right to die. But in this case, maybe the pressure to do so based on cultural and social traditions and norms. I mean... Mm -hmm. Think of it this way. How many doctors, scientists, artists, great thinkers have the Venuri sent into the cenotaph who still had months or, or years of great work ahead of them? Like, we don't know how long this has been a part of their tradition, you know. And, and I want to say just for myself, you know, I fully support the right to die. But I recognize that it's complicated and there needs to be legal and ethical safeguards around that discussion. But it truly is one of the most intimate points of autonomy that shouldn't be dictated by someone else, you know. Mm -hmm. at, at the same time, what other influences may drive someone to make that decision if or when the time is right for them? It, so it does, you know, going on what you're saying here, it seems like Hetiel is pressured to feel like he's a burden, like he no longer has something to contribute. And, and this weighs more heavily than anything physical to do with his condition. It, it's this sad, complicated position where we find him psychologically. It, it, it's really one of the most difficult things about the episode. You want to see Harry really bond with him and find a, a better way for him. Mm -hmm. With all the different topics that we've discussed, because these are a lot of very important ways of looking at this episode, where do you think they should have gone down? Where do you think they should have planted their flag and say, hey, you know what? We really need to explore A and B as opposed to A through E. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. Right. So that's, again, it's, it's, uh, it's a very interesting episode, very complex. Uh, and I think that we're going to look at that in... Our, our final segment of whether this holds up and the morals, meanings, and messages. I think we will. Okay, we can't use tricorders to scan anything, but we can only look. What about smelling? Did nobody lick anything? Is this even the same Starfleet that dealt with the salt monster?
Well, John, we have arrived at the final emanation of our podcast. Is that fair to say? Are we covered with webs? What's going on here? What, what, what is that? It's just a natural thing I excrete. What? That's gross. Oh. <laughs> but we're, we're not going to go into John's excretions at this stage in the game. No. <laughs> but what we are going to talk about, <laughs> what we are going to talk about is what we talk about at the very end of all of our episodes. Two things. Does this episode withstand the test of time? Does it hold up? And then what are the morals and meanings and messages that we have learned, if any? And... I think that by listening to our observations and our discussion points, this episode has a lot to say, maybe too much to say, but we'll see what John has to say first, and then we'll kind of get into uh, the greater elements of the heavier topic, which is the morals, meanings, and messages. So, John, let's start with you. <laughs> so, I, you know, when talking about does this episode hold up, I actually, I really love that this is an episode that challenges us with unanswered questions. We end with so many unanswered questions. We still, we don't really know who these aliens are. We don't know where they are. Are they even in our same dimension? They, they keep kicking that word around like a different dimension, but we don't know. We honestly, they, they could be down the street. They could be in another galaxy. They could, we have no idea because uh, Harry Kim never got to look at a map. Which is all he asked for. Please, just show me a map. And then what we don't know in the aftermath is, did Harry have an effect on them? I, I think that would be a, a really cool thing to speculate. That here's the one guy, sort of the, the Prometheus who brings them fire, who says, look, your your beliefs around this thing may not be all there is to it. Let me show you a different way of thinking about things. Let me make your universe a bit bigger. And we don't know what happens after that point, because mm -hmm. he's certainly breaking, you know, first contact rules there just by being there. So will the Venari carry on with their same beliefs or or will they have some kind of scientific enlightenment that that pushes them down a different direction and uh and then for that matter what are those neurological energy patterns floating around out there around that uh, ringed planet with its asteroids we don't know we don't know and uh what exactly is that subspace vacuum <laughs> that picks up bodies and puts them down somewhere else like does it have intent is it a, a being it, you know so many unknowns about that too this is for all those reasons and more it, it's a great episode to kick around and speculate and argue about it's not a you see to me episode but rather it is a set of serious takes on serious ideas, all served in this sci-fi context. I love it, and I really have to respect Brandon for going here early in his time with Voyager. And yes, Garrett did say later that he wishes this episode came later in the first season to give Harry some real opportunity for growth. But look, after last week's total misstep, <laughs> it's good to see Voyager be a thoughtful show about ideas again, this one really nailed it. So, yeah, it does hold up in, in many ways. Mm -hmm. uh, how about for you? Yeah, I, I think that this was a really good episode with the potential of being a great episode. And I've said this before uh, in my criticisms of episodes like this in the past, especially with Voyager. It just feels like it had too many notes. It had too many directions that it was trying to... <laughs> 
to analyze and to and to mm-hmm. investigate and to uh, bring up to the you know in, in the consciousness of the narrative. And I love the moral quandaries that it brings yeah. up. It gives us a lot to talk about, and again, maybe too much to talk about when it comes to trying to focus on a tight narrative, a tight story. I think that with a little bit more of a firmer hand and maybe the editing, it could have probably benefited from that. I, I think that there are a lot of great you know, intellectual and philosophical concepts that are happening here. I think that Hatil's story is amazing. I also think Patera's story is amazing, up to a point. I think that you know, um, Thanatologist uh, Narya's story is very interesting because you don't know what he's going to do with the power that he wields, knowing where Harry mm. may have come from. So, uh, and speaking of Harry, I, I do think that, yeah, his, his journey may have been a little bit stronger if they focused a little bit more on, say, his encounter with Hatil, because that was really, I feel, where the emotional core of this episode was. I really love, though, where Janeway is at the end of this. And I think this is one of mm, Kate's mm-hmm. finest moments. That speech at the end that she delivers was perfect. Yeah. The way that she nurtures him and also gives him a firm hand of advice, saying that, you know, just breathe on this a little bit. Don't let this escape what it really means to you. Don't let, you know, uh, the the brevity of you having to go back from, you know, this experience to your duty ruin what really, really matters and you savoring what this means to you and how it's going to, how it's going to affect your entire being. Not for now, maybe not for no years to come, but later in your life when you need to reflect on this moment. And I love when she says, you know, write about it, paint about it, express yourself artistically about it. When was the last time you heard that come from a captain's mouth? I know that to me was very, very moving. So that in and of itself uh, allows me to say, yeah, they were thinking about some great ideas. I think they stuck the landing with the way that Janeway approaches Harry at the end. I just think that in the middle somewhere, it could have just need, you know, used a little bit of tightening in the midsection, but you know, it's easy to say that, you know, uh, (laughs) looking at it, you know, in in hindsight, no, but that, that's really interesting, though, because I, I, I like how I like how all those things didn't fit for you, because um, it, it really does sort of say something about the creative process and putting this episode together. So here's Brandon with these ideas going, oh, OK, we're going to look at euthanasia. We're going to look at the you know power of belief and death and existence, et cetera. And it feels like that's an episode where. Really, you you could do multiple episodes that try to explore that. And maybe it is too much to chew on. It's just too much to try to take on in a single episode. But as you said it, that final moment with Janeway allows us to sit, to be Harry for that moment. Mm -hmm. And just to sort of sit there with the... um, the sort of the the confusion and almost comfort of those unanswered questions um and for essentially like the permission that she gives to say like this is not easy it's not going to be easy take time right so maybe that's all that we really needed to get was that that because the other stuff we can't resolve, <laughs> you know? Well, okay, so let, let's look at that then. What about morals, meanings, messages, discussion here? What did you pick up? Well, I mean, we did mention euthanasia several times, and that's kind of like where, 
uh, I was leaning towards when I was looking for morals and meanings and messages because it asks uh, the story asks me to ask you out there is the possibility of being whole again in a different plane of existence worth the risk of pursuing the unknown or the afterlife because what Hattil is going through and maybe what some of the others that uh, have gone through you know, going through the next emanation ceremony going through the cenotaph they're almost mm. maneuvered into going through that process because their family believes that it would be better for everybody if the sick or afflicted as a burden can just disappear into a better version of themselves. Mm. Am I describing that right? Am I, am I, yeah. am I, am I, you know, articulating that correctly in terms of what's being said here in the episode? Well, yeah, I mean, again, that, that is the, the unfair pressure that's put on like, Oh, look, it'll be better. You'll be well, you'll be among the people who went before you'll see them. Your questions will be answered. Like all this mm-hmm. stuff that, that is putting an enormous amount of pressure on them. And does it even give somebody until you meet Hatil doesn't allow them the chance to even say no to that. Cause how could you, what breaks my heart about, at least the Teal situation. And I, I feel that they're bringing this up because I think that a lot of, of those who chose the next emanation ceremony, again, were maneuvered into it. Hatil says, I'm a burden to my family. It takes a lot of mm. their time and resources to care for me, and I can't give much back to them. So there was a family meeting, quote unquote, family meeting, and it was mm. agreed that I should move on to the next emanation. <sighs> yeah. Who agreed and why? Right. They agreed for him. They agreed yeah. for him. So what I'm struggling with is, did Harry do more harm than good to these people by proving to them that in this pursuit of eternal happiness, which he he exposed as being at the end of this cavern in an asteroid, did he enlighten someone like an Hytil to the actual truth of what was happening with this next emanation spiritualism or did Janeway say did she satisfy Harry's curiosity with saying that the one thing that we don't know about death far outweighs what we do know is that satisfying Mm. to an end of this episode I'm not sure Mm. really it's all about this unexplored territory for me as a Star Trek fan that I find very fascinating I can see both sides of this equation is there a moral to this at the end I don't know because there's no answer to this eternal question. There's only debate, (laughs) right? How about you, John? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, look, I I think I had a lot of the similar thoughts that you did. And and I thought, you know, we don't have a position on Earth called thanatologist exactly, but we probably should. Because death and discussions of death permeate so much of what we do, from the medical concerns to family concerns to legal issues, not to mention the spiritual and existential concerns that face us all. And like Kirk, we're mostly pretty good at cheating death and then patting ourselves on the back for our ingenuity, mm-hmm. you know, until it creeps up on us. You know, but the reality is that we will all face death in a multitude of ways because it is inevitable. And as you just said, we still don't have solid answers on so much. So I can really be sympathetic with the Venori, though. Uh, we, we can all be and we should be. You know, when we're faced with a gap in our knowledge, 
and uh, this gap that truly can't be filled, then we start to fill that gap with stories and superstitions and wishful thinking and comforting beliefs. And those become so entrenched that any information to the contrary is almost immediately rejected. So I'll refer us all back to one of my favorite books that I've mentioned before, and that is Carl Sagan's The Demon Haunted World. And uh, he is the one who said, better the hard truth, I say, than the comforting fantasy. And in the final tolling, it often turns out that the facts are more comforting than the fantasy. And look, it is a dose of hard-to-swallow facts that a society like the Venori need. It's not that they aren't respectful, philosophical, thoughtful about their rituals and customs and their concerns about death, but the truth is that they have no evidence of their afterlife, and their strongly held beliefs are preventing them from a serious line of intellectual inquiry. Think, you know, I kind of mentioned it before, think of how many lives they have cut short, how many opportunities they've missed, how many unnecessary goodbyes they've said, because no one is brave enough to step up and ask if the belief they have is actually correct. Take that and apply it to whatever you want to, please, because it's something that I will stand by forever and ever. Now, the right to die is one thing. To pressure to die is entirely another. The, the self-imposed limits on exploration and understanding solely because of a traditional belief dressed up in fancy words and heavy fancy robes, that is the greatest tragedy of the Venori. But, but I'll say this, re- reflecting what you said, Norman, Janeway's talk with Harry Kim was pretty golden. It gives him the freedom to sit in his feelings for a while, to express what he's been through, and I imagine it'll take more than a few days And it also states very plainly that we don't know everything, which is entirely fair. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Prime Factors. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. It's frustrating that we never see if Harry turned this experience into interpretive dance or maybe catch poetry with an exhibit of macaroni pictures. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.